When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. On the programme this morning, the Irish government is considering taking UK authorities to the European Court of Human Rights. It follows the ratification of the UK government's controversial legacy bill for Northern Ireland. President Michael D. Higgins officially opens the National Planning Championships in County Leash yesterday, one of the biggest shows of its kind in Europe. The three-day event at Ratbaniska is expected to attract tens of thousands of visitors. 700 cases of mouth, head and neck cancer will be diagnosed this year. The IFA President Tim Cullinan said the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar needs to honour his commitment to get Commissioner Sinkovicius to Ireland as soon as possible on the nitrates issue. Well, if these stories and more on the programme between now and 11 o'clock. Just before we press on, there's one thing I just want to make you aware of. If you are heading to the Ploughing Championships this morning, this was just tweeted by the Garthi. Garthi and emergency services are at the scene of a collision in Mulliganard outside Mount Mellick, County Leash. Garthi are diverting traffic away from the OR422. And they're advising those travelling to Rathaniska for the Ploughing Championships may experience delays if taking that route. Now, if you want to contact us, you can WhatsApp us 86 658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. The IFA president, Tim Cullinan, said the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar needs to honour his commitment to get Commissioner Sinkovicius to Ireland as soon as possible on the nitrates issue. President of the Irish Farmers Association said he did not accept that it would be impossible to make changes to the nitrates derogation. He said that Mr Sinkovicius was shocked and alarmed when he explained the consequences it would have on Irish farmers during a meeting yesterday. And Tim Cullinan joins us this morning. Tim, thanks for taking our call this morning. I am utterly confused when it comes to this issue right now because yesterday and not just yesterday a week ago Charlie McConlow the agriculture minister said not for renegotiation it is what it is there's no movement on it you seem to think there is movement on it the Taoiseach must think there's movement on it because he's invited the commissioner over to perhaps have a conversation around it so who are we to believe yeah um good morning good morning Chris you're right and uh, this is this story has been running now for over a week and uh, I suppose it's going back to last Friday morning where we had a meeting with the Taoiseach and you know, we explained the consequences of losing this derogation would have on, in particular on dairy farmers and the wider farmer community as well and uh, on the back of that meeting the Taoiseach agreed that Uriah would invite the Commissioner Sinkovich uh, over to Ireland and you know, what we want is you know, for that Commissioner to get out on some of our excellent dairy farms here in this country and see what we're doing as regards all of the measure up the Turkey measure farmers have adopted since 2018. Of course, where the confusion is coming in here, you're right, Minister McConnell you know, has come out in the last number of days saying you know, that uh, he believes this is done and we can't, we can't have changes. But, I mean, when the T-shirt of the country is willing to get involved in a process with a view to uh, maintaining... Uh, 
the current derogation. But then I think what's been our minister needs to get in and support the Taoiseach there as well. And though it, this is very frustrating for ourselves, but I think it's critically important you know, that the minister supports the Taoiseach's position on this. And you know, we need a whole of government approach. On Monday, myself, uh, I did meet with um, Commissioner Sinkovich in, in Brussels on Monday morning, and um, you know, I explained to him the consequences uh, losing this derogation would have on Irish farmers. And uh, you know he took he took all that on board, and uh, at that stage he was awaiting an invitation from the teacher to come to Ireland. Now my understanding, and I, I could be corrected on this, is that at this point that the teacher has um, issued the invitation to the commissioner to come. And that's my that understanding. Process. But Tim, I, I, I need yeah. to just ascertain here: did he actually turn around the commissioner and say to you he was shocked and alarmed? Yeah, yeah. He, he, well, he said, yeah, he, he wasn't made aware of the consequences you know, prior to I meeting with him on Monday morning. And you know, I think he understands now the concern of Irish farmers. And that's why, and what he did say to me was, like, if he was, if he would receive an invitation from the head of state in Ireland or our Taoiseach, definitely he would come to Ireland. Now, are you concerned that this issue is being caught up in a political spat? That's what it seems to be between the Taoiseach and the Minister for Agriculture, that the issue will just be sidelined. Yeah, and, and look, I made that very clear to our Minister last night. I do not want, it, want uh, us to end up in a spat between um, between our Minister and the Taoiseach and, you know, and the, have farmers being the pawns in this as well. I think you know, that would be very, very wrong. And uh, as I said already, I want government working jointly on this and, and not the Minister saying one thing and the Taoiseach saying something else. So look, it's time now that the Minister would support his Taoiseach and we try and resolve this issue and move forward. Now, is the t- clock ticking on this, Tim? When do we need to get an answer or a clear understanding of where the derogation is going for Irish farmers? So look, the clock is ticking on this since last May when the farmers made a decision of their breeding programme for, for their cows for the coming year and those cows will be calving in January of next year. So we need a decision on this immediately. And it was absolutely astounding that the Minister the minister made this um, decision on his own back without consultation with ourselves or anybody else within the sector, not just the farm organisations, the industry as a whole. There was no consultation with anybody and he made this decision and the Minister surely would understand the decision that farmers had made themselves last May you know, when, when they were planning the number of cows they would have on the farms for, the, for 2024. So this, this, this issue needs to be uh, cleared up sooner rather than later because, as I say, farmers have made their decision on the the, the number of animals they're going to have in the farms for 2024. So the sooner we can get the commissioner over here, get everybody around the table, and I think, you know, I think it, it's, it just shows the concern, you know, when the Taoiseach is taking the time to get involved in, in, in this issue himself. OK, but one would have to presume that the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellogue, would have all the facts, he would have the contacts, he would have had the engagement at European level to understand what the position is around the derogation. And he is merely amplifying what has been said to him, that it is what it is and it ain't for moving. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I suppose on that very point, uh, the, the Minister set up a water policy group. Uh, we put what we believe is a very credible proposal to that group and, so. You know, 
it's again, it's very worrying that um, that proposal you know, wasn't taken on board, and our proposal was about reducing the amount of chemical fertilizer used on farms, uh, making better use of organic fertilizer on farms you know, for for growing grass. And you know, we've seen we've seen the reduction in chemical fertilizer over the last two years, fifteen percent last year. 15% year-to-date again this year. And so our clear position on this is all the work has been done and it just takes time just to see water quality improving. And so we are seeing, so we're seeing what's happening here is the trend. And obviously, so it takes more than just one year. A trend is over a number of years and that's what we need to see here. And so that's, that is the point that our, our sorry, our, uh, minister needs to be making to the European uh, Union, the, the officials of, of, of the Commissioner in Europe. Well, what's your view on the report that was commissioned into the pollution in Loch Ney, which had transpired that 60% of the blame rests with nitrates coming off land, fertiliser coming off land, hence it's the farmers who are responsible. You know, you have to take all these things into consideration when we're looking at a derogation because it's about reducing the amount of nitrates, fertilisers being used and leading consequently to a reduction in pollutants going into water. Obviously, that's that, that is in Northern Ireland, and I'm not going to comment on it, what farmers are doing in Northern Ireland. But what I do know is, if we, if you look at um, the the monitoring of the bays here in our in in Southern Ireland, or the catchment area of ri- rivers flowing into into the sea, over 40 percent of um, the nutrients is actually coming from wastewater treatment plants as well. And that needs to be in the debate as well. What's happening here is there's no improvement on that side and farmers are expected to make all the improvements. And why we're so frustrated is and speaking to I spoke to farmers all day yesterday here at the ploughing. We'll be here again I'm here again this morning and what they're saying to me is, look, we're out there, we're doing the work. Like, what is the government doing on the other side? What are local authorities doing? So they are not making the improvement. And even if we make an improvement, we're going to have to make double that improvement so for to improve water quality because if the water treatment plants going into those bays are not rectified, thus it continues the problem. Let me ask you, and going back to the Minister for Agriculture, given how this is deteriorated in terms of the issue and the relationship between yourselves and him. Does the farming community have confidence in him to do his job and to represent the farming community of Ireland? Uh, look, Chris, um, look, that's not... It's a straight a question. It's a no, but it's a straight I, I know, question. Yeah, yes well, or no? Well, As president yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of the biggest farming organisation in the country, you must have a view. Yeah, yeah well, my, my answer to that is we have a situation here where the Taoiseach of the country has come out willing to get involved. What, I, what I'm saying is what I want to see, are, for me to maintain confidence in the minister, he needs to engage with his Taoiseach and get out there and get a resolution for farmers and then, look, we'll reassess where we are there. So you're saying to me, what, you're 50-50 at this point and if he doesn't no, budge... No, I, uh, Chris, I, did, I didn't say that. What I'm saying is the minister has a job of work to do here to maintain an excellent production system we have here in Ireland, the grass-based system, and we need we need our minister fighting on his back to protect Irish farming going forward. That's what I'm saying. And are your members confident that he's putting up that fight for them? Is that what you're hearing at the ploughing championships yesterday and today? No, what I'm hearing at the ploughing championship is, look... 
They want to see the minister on the pitch. They want to see him talking out and getting out there, and they're not seeing that at the moment. Okay, Tim Cullahan, pre- uh, Cullahan, I beg your pardon, uh, IFA president. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. You can email us this morning. It's Michael at LMFM.ie. Just want to slightly uh, segue back into something we were covering yesterday, and it was a big news story about uh, Mickey Hart going to Derry. And of course, Derry confirmed that he is the man. <coughs> excuse me, to take over at the helm there. It was interesting the reaction to that, particularly on social media. I came across one particular. Um, tweet on, it's not called Twitter anymore, it's called X, from Joe Brawley. Some of you may like him, some of you may hate him, but nonetheless he's always entertaining. And his tweet around the particular uh, news was, this is the worst thing to happen to Derry since the plantation. That's his view on Mickey Hart coming up to Derry. Anyway, I want to stay with the Ploughing Championship uh, because President Michael DeHiggins officially opened the National Ploughing Championships in Leash yesterday. It's one of the biggest shows of its kind in Europe. The three-day event at Rathanisk is expected to attract tens of thousands of visitors. And we're joined by Bauer Media reporter Aoife Kearns, who has uh, been at the the um, particular championship since yesterday and joins us online. Aoife, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Alan. Yeah, I, so I'm here two days, yeah. Yeah, I, I saw some of your pictures yesterday you posted on WhatsApp. It was pretty grim in terms of the conditions. It was wet, it was muddy, there was a lot of Wellingtons, a lot of umbrellas and a lot of heavy coats. What's it like there today? Well, it's a saying there's muck in money was true. I'd say <laughs> there'd be a very there'd be a huge amount of rich people at the ploughing um, here in Rathaneska today. Um, there was a lot of rain overnight here. And I believe there was a slurry tank brought in to suck up some of the excess water and a bit of a clean-up operation just to try and get the soil uh, ready for today. Um, just walking in, um, a lot of puddles and, and muck and all the rest. But the weather is after picking up quite a bit. Um, no rain as of this morning. The sun is shining here. Um, but I guess, you know, the conditions are still bad mm-hmm. following the rain overnight. Um few cars pulled from the car park yesterday and I believe that uh, they have a kind of an emergency car park in operation now essentially that has been there in the event this were to happen. Now, for those people who have never visited the Ploughing Championship and I was there a couple of times myself the sheer size and breadth of what it covers in terms of acreage, the sort of stands that are there, the representative organisations, it is vast. Perhaps you could just give give us an idea of how vast it is, Aoife. Absolutely. I mean, there's every kind of farming group, uh, farming publications, uh, different kind of companies, uh, machinery businesses. There's that agricultural side of things. But there's also the bit of fun and the bit of madness and... Um, like say for example today Mockton the Firma, uh, you know, the group for young people and farmers in rural Ireland, they're hoping to set a, a Guinness World Book of Records for uh, the most amount of people throwing wellies at the same time, I believe. Um, you know, you have then your the makeup um stalls and food stalls and it's like a kind of a, a fair or a festival, but it's huge, a hundred acres in terms of uh where the exhibition space is um, and there's also a few funny things as well today for example um, there'll be a vote uh, uh, this is being uh, formulated by the Diocese of Kildare and Loughlin a vote for Ireland's favourite saints so uh, they'll be uh, asking people here at the National Prayer and who, who's made the short list on that Aoife or have they given us a short list they haven't given us the short list but um, I, I, I'm sure um, there's a lot of people I don't I, I, I have a I have a sneaking 
suspicion that uh, Anthony probably, probably ranked fairly high up here, uh, high up on that list. Uh, you know, the the saint for um, missing things and missing items. Uh, or uh, or Saint Jude, the patron saint of lost causes, it could be as well. Oh no. yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a lot of toys there. Listen, um, Eva, I just want to talk to you a little bit about, and I know you had an opportunity to listen in on what the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellogue, was saying yesterday. We had Tim Cullinan on here moments ago, the president of the IFA, talking about the nitrates derogation. It came up yesterday with the minister, did it not? Yeah, so um, the minister did a media briefing yesterday afternoon, and naturally he reiterated the stance on nitrate derogation, that the allowance of 250 um, kg of nitrogen per hectare will will be reduced to 220. Obviously, the IFA are vehemently saying that they're not going to take anything less than the 220. Um, but I guess, you know, for even farmers on the ground here, there are questions. Look, what is going to happen come January? January's not that long away. And mm. Minister McConnell was actually interjected in that media briefing by a farmer who asked that very question. What is going to happen come January if it is a case that the, you know, the 220 kg is going to come into place from then? What are we supposed to do? Um, because you have to take into account that farmers have to plan well in advance. At the moment, there'll be a lot of cows in calf, for example. They have, you know, planned for the next six, month to a year in terms of their herd numbers if, if it is a case that they have to reduce them they don't really know they're kind of it's all up in the air still mm. even though we have been told that the 220 kg is essentially what where 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 it's at at the moment but what the minister did say is look at the moment that they're working on ways uh, to try and support farmers he didn't elaborate on what um, some of those ways were um i i would i would think that maybe um you know before the budget, we might have more indication. I know you might say the budget, what significance that might have, but potentially, and this is just potentially, there might be some kind of scheme or uh, in terms of um, you know cattle uh, reduction or or something lo- along those lines. That's what the indications are. It seems, but there, there, we might get some more clarity. I would mm-hmm. say in the next month or so. Now, you you uh, are aware of the anger which was expressed by the farming community at the Fianna Fáil and Fulgail think-ins over the uh, over last week. Did you get that sense of anger from farmers there yesterday when the minister was there, or what was their demeanour generally at the ploughing championships, Aoife? I didn't see any major heckling when the minister was there or anything like that. As I said, there were one farmers that did interject during that media opportunity. Um, I guess, look, the thing is, farming has been all over the news uh, over the past number of weeks. And, it's uh, you know, nitrate derogation is at the tip of everyone's tongue, yes. But this is kind of an opportunity to far- for farmers to maybe actually, you know, discuss these matters with different rep- representative groups, with different political parties to actually talk about it. And less about maybe the, you know, the angry scenes and more about the, the, the discussions. And I know as well uh, yesterday... Um, uh, Tim Cullinan, the IFA president, did have a discussion with Charlie McConnell, and I believe the IFA as well. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of getting mixed messages to an extent. I mean, uh, they seem to have a very positive meeting with the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar on Friday, and then, you know, again today, or yesterday rather, Charlie McConnell saying that there's no go back with this 220 kg in regards to the nitrate derogation. So, mm. look, I mean, it's, I don't think there's any major angry scenes certainly on the tip of everyone's tongue. It's certainly things that are being discussed amongst farmers themselves and in different tents and uh, within different organisations. But I don't. I didn't see any angry scenes as of yet. Um, just separately in terms of what else is happening today on the political front, um, Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris, will be out. 
Um, I, I have to say, it is very funny seeing um, different politicians in a full suit and a pair of Wellingtons covered in muck. It is a funny sight. Um, and then also um, the Garden Commissioner, Drew Harris, uh, naturally, I'm sure he'll be asked questions in regards to, I suppose, the feeling amongst Gardaí at the moment. We had the vote of no confidence mm-hmm. last week, and we're just coming from that. So he'll be out today. I'm sure he'll be answering plenty of questions on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's really all happening here in Rathenesca, County Leash. And, and what's important as well to stress here, that it's not just about the farming community. The world and its mother goes to the ploughing championships. The, the glitterati of, of, of Ireland turn up there almost daily. Absolutely. And do you know what? I find it really nice. I'm from rural Ireland myself and it's a kind the of The South Kilkenny where... woman. Put your put your <laughs> flag uh, put your flag down. <laughs> and uh, I, I you know, I grew up going to the ploughing and it's a kind of a day that you'd be proud to be from the country, you know, that kind of way. Um and it's great and you're, you're there's no shame about it and um, you should never feel shame about it, but you would be proud to be from the country on a day like today. And yeah, as you said there, like between politicians and you know, different uh, TV presenters and journalists and all of the rest, they're all here um, at the playwing. And there is, like, different things. Like, I saw people throwing axes yesterday. There's just mad things here all together. People doing, um, diving away um, on a stage, their sheep shearing. And then, like, as I said, I heard girls saying, I, I believe there's a place where you can get your makeup done, for example. So I heard, I saw two um, teenage girls there saying yesterday, oh, we'll go down and we'll have a look at the machinery. We'll get our makeup done afterwards. So that's, that's the variety that you have here, you know. Listen, Aoife, before I let you go, there was, well, it wasn't a huge degree of controversy prior to the uh, championship where the organisers wanted people to buy tickets online prior to coming to it. And yeah. you could understand the rationale behind it. But overall, in terms of its organisation, weather aside, is it running pretty smoothly? Yeah, like, I mean, weather aside, like, as I said there, they had to put the emergency car park in place. I believe, actually, yesterday, Alan, something like 85% of the tickets were sold online. Um, so they would have, and they would have obviously had extra tickets um, left over yesterday. I think that the turnout probably was a bit smaller, just in light of the fact there was heavy rain. But as I said there, you know, the first day of the ploughing isn't generally the biggest day. Um, the Wednesday and the Thursday oftentimes would garner the largest crowds. But yeah, like it is running fairly smoothly just in light of, in light of that, as you said. Um, the, the general traffic advice that they're giving is that in terms of um, making your way to just follow the signs, don't go on the sat-nav because, you know, there's stewards all over the place and they'll be guiding you to whatever car okay. park they they think and as far as I know and um, you might the, your news team might be able to update and give the latest on that as far as uh, we're aware a kind of a small road traffic collision um, in the vicinity which probably will kind of impact um, yeah, well, I, I did note that, Aoife. Yeah, I, I just made our, our listeners aware of that, all right. There are uh, slight diversions in place and potential delays on it. But listen, we've got to leave there. Aoife Kearns, reporter with Bauer Media at the Planning Championships. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. If you want to email us, you can do so. Email michael at lmfm.ie. The doll resumes. The UN General Assembly is concluding. The President strays into areas controversially. 
areas that perhaps he shouldn't at the planning championship. This and other political matters to discuss this morning with the political correspondent with Virgin Media, who is Gavin Riley, also columnist with the Meath Chronicle. Gavin, good morning. Thanks for taking our call this morning. morning. I want to I want to start with the political spat between the Taoiseach and Charlie McConlogue. Nobody's backing down on this, Gavin. Where will it end? Uh, well, I should say where it ends probably in, in truth is with nothing really changing, in all honesty, because it certainly seems that the European Commission has set its face that it's, it's not going to back down from this, that Ireland did have its derogation on the nitrates uh, directive, but that it's not going to get it back unless water quality improves. So really kind of what we're looking at in a, in a way is superficial because it's just a case of, you know, do you have a meeting in person? Are you happy to have a meeting in video call? And that's kind of where the dispute is. But that in itself is nearly the most dangerous base for the government because the superficial stuff is mm-hmm. often, uh, and optics, that, that's often where, where coalitions uh, become slightly unglued. Uh, so where it is right now, Charlie McConnell is trying to effectively state that uh, Leo Varadkar inviting the European Commissioner over for a meeting in person is all well and good, but everyone's just going to merely restate their position that nothing concrete is going to come of it. Um, but one assumes that Leo Varadkar didn't think he was going to organise a meeting where a European Commissioner was going to come all the way to Dublin simply to say a thing that he'd already said and then to disappear back into the night in, in the Brussels bureaucracy. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how all this uh, comes out in the wash whenever the meeting does take place. It is worth noting, by the way, and this is maybe partly explained by Leo Varadkar being in New York, but also maybe partly explained by the fact that they don't really know what's going to come of it. Um, you know, with all the, the urgency of all of this, with the IFA showing up at the two think-ins last week, with uh, the Plowing Championships on this week and putting all of this issue front and centre again, doesn't appear to be any timetable for this meeting with the European Commissioner actually happening. That it's all about the optics of saying we're going to invite him over uh, for a sit-down, but when that's actually going to happen or when there might be any scope for for a possible change if there was to be one, uh, no talk of it. And you'd think that if this derogation is going to be lost in the new year and you're going to have hundreds of farms forced to either rent more land or downsize their stock, you'd think there would be a bit of urgency definitely having that. But yes, we're now a week on and there's no sign of that actually being arranged, which is curious in its own right. Well, well talking to the IFA President Tim Cullinan this morning on this programme, he was of the view that an invitation has been sent and a meeting is perhaps imminent. Now, if things remain the same, the big losers here are going to be the IFA, and one should never underestimate the bite and the sheer strength of the lobby of the IFA and the consequences that will be for politicians if things don't change in favour of the IFA. So somebody's going to be damaged here politically. Yes, so somebody certainly will be, uh, and it'll be interesting to see exactly kind of where it comes out. But of course, they'll have to wait until maybe a little bit after that meeting to see if Leo Varadkar is able to strong-arm some kind of a change out of the European Commission. To be honest, I have my doubts. They tend to generally make up their minds and don't tend to be uh, to fall victim to domestic politics. And that ultimately is where the two sides are going to have different outlooks on this because the European Commission unelected for, for better or worse, and that's going to mean that they don't really care about the prospect of electoral politics or about... Uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil candidates getting a bit of a shellacking when it comes to the European uh, Parliament elections next June mm-hmm. or the local elections or the, the general when to come. They kind of generally tend to leave these things by procedure and principle and not necessarily by what's going on domestically. So some, somebody is going to come out, but you're absolutely right. Um, nobody would ever want to pick a fight with the IFA in any circumstances, let alone coming into a winter, coming into a budget season and then coming into the prospect where you will genuinely have probably hundreds of, of livestock farms either forcing themselves to downsize or rent more land or prospectively go out of business entirely. And that was, by the way, that, that is a, a serious thing. I didn't get to hear Tim Cullen just, just before me a moment ago. Um, but when I was at the Fianna Fáil thinking last week and I was speaking to many of the farmers who had shown up in pretty impressive numbers outside the thinking and horse and jockey, 
they were making it pretty clear that they didn't see any livelihood for themselves after this, that they were hoping that there might be some kind of budget aid for farmers or some kind of uh, financial compensation package. There was no sign of any of it. And they're saying, well, if we don't get some sort of change in circumstances or a change in financing, we're goosed. Uh, we're going under. And uh, we'll betide anyone who wants to take on that fight with, with an election only a few months around the corner. OK, let's uh, turn our attention to the comments made by the President, Michael D. Higgins, in his opening address at the planning championships yesterday. Was he dancing on a pinhead or was he straying into territory that's none of his business as president of the country? And I talk in relation to the United Nations. He pretty much took aim at them to saying they're, in effect, defunct. They're not fit for purpose. Yeah, which is a curious attitude for Michael D. Higgins to take because um, I know that like not every one of the president's pronouncements generally sort of tends to make any uh, imprint in the public sphere at large. But when you get uh, press releases from... Or as an Uchtaron, as I do, and as anyone in the, in the news media does, you'll often see Michael D. Higgins issuing a statement with some sort of very sophisticated analysis of the latest pronouncements by the UN Secretary General. So it, it clearly, he thinks that the the UN, or at least the head of the UN, is somebody that's worth paying attention to, and that his input in in public debate is something that needs to be paid attention to. Why Michael D. Higgins would then turn around and appear to lambaste the UN as a total irrelevance that's incapable of basically tying shoelaces, let alone doing anything else, is kind of curious. Now, it is fascinating that when you read the full remarks that Michael D. Higgins said yesterday, there was another line in there which kind of dampened down what he said first. So, yes, the UN is irrelevant. It's incapable of managing migration. It's incapable of stopping war. It's incapable of addressing terrorism, whatever it may be. A few lines down, he says... That's the reason why countries like Ireland need to stay the course. That's why we need to put our shoulders to the wheel and get involved, because we're a country that doesn't try to, you know, manipulate the world to suit ourselves. No, we but we're, but in the context of the UN, we're minnows. Well, we are, but I mean, everyone everyone does have an equal say. Yes, we, we might seem like we're a fairly small player on the world stage, but we have as much of a say in the UN as the United Nations does. We have as much of a say in the UN as the Marshall Islands. I mean, I remember the Irish uh, civil servants making this point when we were trying to get onto the Security Council a couple of years ago. Like, it's all well and good securing the support of uh, the UK or the US or Germany or France, but every country has the same vote. So St. Kitts and Nevis and St. Lucia and Antigua and Barbuda and Lesotho all have exactly the same vote and exactly the same sway in, in principle uh, as, the, as the, the US or Russia or any other of the nuclear powers of the world. So they, they don't see us as being entirely moot, but I suppose if, if you were to recognise the idea that we might be relatively less influential, then you sort of question what's the point of basically having any kind of diplomats around the world at all, because if you don't think it's possible for Ireland to have its imprint, then, then what are you going to do? Now, Ireland, if, when you go to, to things like the, the UN in, in New York, Ireland does have a bit of a track record of stuff that it's proud of. You know, this week we're in the UN, they're talking about sustainable development goals. They were obviously pre-pandemic, but they were something that Ireland had I know, to but, broker. But, but you know something, that that's a bit of a dead dog. I mean, it's not going to reach, you know, the heights that had been proposed by Antonio Guterres. Yeah. I mean, we're, what, even, what, five out of the whole lot of them have only been implemented at this point, and we needed yeah, them all yeah. implemented by 2030? It's not going to happen. Yeah, no, the track record on delivery isn't great on that one, but I was going to say that if you go back a few decades as well, there's also a treaty against, nu- a treaty against nuclear proliferation and in favour of nuclear disarmament, basically trying to make sure that Hiroshima and Nagasaki didn't become commonplace features in the world. And that was developed and proposed and basically brought across the line by Ireland back in the day. Now, it was back in the day when there were fewer members and the world wasn't as multipolar as it is now, but it's something that Ireland likes to hang its hat on. There's a little bit of proof that if you manage to strike while the iron is hot or if you manage to 
to do something and, and rub people the right way that you can actually get something out of it. But in the, to go back to, to Michael D's comments, uh, I think it was curious that even if there was something to defend Ireland's work at the UN, that he would choose that moment, apparently unprompted, you know, while the Taoiseach, while the Taunashta, while the Minister for Communications and Environment and Climate Change, while the Minister for Health, while they are all at the UN talking about trying to make the world more sustainable and making sure that we don't fall victim to another COVID or whatever else it might be, that he would choose that moment to say the UN basically isn't worth the paper it's written on. It was curious timing, to say the very least. Just going back to my question, on the basis of what he has said and your interpretation of what he had said, do you expect that he will be getting a phone call from either the Taunus or the Taoiseach to say, keep your nose out of it, none of your business? Uh, <laughs> I suspect he probably won't because they know when not to pick a fight uh, with Michael D. Higgins. And that's, that's a kind of curious thing because Michael D. Higgins is able to say stuff and uh, although it's not supposed to be within the realms of his job to say these things, because he is so personally popular, he gets away with saying those things. And in fact, it's more acceptable nearly for him to say things than it would be for the teacher Katonashda, even though it's actually their job. So, you know, if, if they were to say, you know, oh, the UN is barely worth the paper it's written on. If Mino Martin were to say that, then as the Minister for Foreign Affairs, as somebody who helped to oversee a campaign to get onto the Security Council a couple of years ago, he would be dragged through the mud every which way. Like, what, what would you be doing as a Minister for Foreign Affairs, basically decrying the world, the, the one major forum in the world that could be a, a positive force for change? Like, he'd be torn to shreds for doing that. And it's funny that Michael D. Higgins, whose job doesn't involve that kind of stuff, is nearly able to get away with that sort of statement. But to go back to your question, whether they'll pick a fight, I suspect they know not to. Uh, there's a track record now of Michael D. Higgins maybe veering into things that politicians would generally like him to stay away from. But they know that he's far more popular than they are. So they would they, they would do well rather than to pick a fight with the one guy who's always going to command more public sympathy. Now, I'm not going to let you go uh, without asking about what in God's name are you doing on Gogglebox? I was wondering if you were going to bring this up, actually, because I don't know whether you said this morning or whether the listeners are aware. It is on this day, September the 20th, uh, 1998, that the very first TV3 News at Six was broadcast in the hot seats Gronje Shoga and Alan Cantwell, the first day of broadcasting on TV3, which is obviously now Virgin Media Television, which is 25 years ago today. Uh, in truth, why we were asked to, to be part of Celebrity Gogglebox, in truth, I don't know, because the first word there is a problem, celebrity. Like, I, I, I don't think I count a celebrity. I, I'm able to walk the streets and go into a spa. I know, Gavin, come on. Don't but do yourself a disservice. Sometimes, so I don't know. But like, it was very nice to be invited on, and actually we, we, we did some of the filming over the weekend, and obviously there is, spoiler alert, uh, there's the very first uh, TV3 news bulletin with yourself and growing you 25 years ago today. There's also a couple of other gems uh, from the TV3 Virgin Media archive, bits and pieces that I'd completely forgotten about, like a dating show presented by Twink, basically a sort of a take-me-out Oh, Jesus, that was a car people, crash, a complete well, car crash. Well, it, did, it did involve literal cars, yeah, where you were trying to, <laughs> to pick your fella based on which car you thought he drove. Uh, not so much pimp my ride as tick my ride, basically. Pardon the pun. Uh, but that was great fun. Uh, there's a more Celtic Tiger thing where Keith Duffy is presenting the box yeah. where people are living in a Perspex cube uh, down in Smithfield. Um, there is Celebrity Salon where you get to see Virginia McCary uh, waxing the chest of Breffney Morgan from The Apprentice. Uh, lots, of, lots of great memories in there. And, of course, uh, some more of the week's TV as well. So it, it was great fun to film. There's so many households in it, to be honest. I... I I doubt we'll make the cut very much. I think there's 12 or 13. And, and answer, do they actually, do they film in your sitting room or dining room or wherever? Or do they build a set or take you somewhere to film it? Is it in your own no, place? They, they, well, they, 
they film it. You provide the house, so if, if you want to go and rent a gaff for the weekend to do it, that's that's up to you. But uh, I must confess now, in in my instance, uh, I am notionally hosting Richard Chambers and Zara King when we're watching all this stuff. <laughs> but what, what, what we're doing it in my parents' house because uh, the two lads live alone, so they don't have the furniture to cater to that many people. And to be honest, I I have two girls, four and two. The house has enough tasks without being able to squeeze in a full production crew as well. So we borrowed the good room in Kiltail uh, from my parents to be able to do that filming for the weekend. And I'm very glad they made it available to us. What time is that on at? Uh, that is at nine o'clock tonight on Virgin Media One. And if you don't bother changing channel afterwards, you'll see the three of us back again for the group chat at 11. Super. Thanks so much for that, Kevin Riley, Paul Coe with Virgin Media and contributor to the Meath Chronicle. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. A third of solid fuels on sale in the Republic of Ireland are sold illegally. Solid Fuel Merchants Ireland claims that effective action against solid fuel smuggling will yield positive outcomes not only for the industry, but also for the overall economy and the environment. Solid Fuel Merchants Ireland is the representative body of Irish solid fuel retailers. Joining us this morning is Colin O'Hearn, Chair of Solid Fuel Merchants Ireland. Colin, thank you for joining us this morning. I want to deal with those figures first to third sold illegally. Those figures are based on what and where did you get them from? Well, uh, Alan, good morning and thanks very much for having me on. Uh, those business are um, from an economic report that was just carried out by Marley Economics. Um, as it states that 33% of all fuel in Ireland, solid fuel, is sold illegally, uh, which is costing the state somewhere up to 15 million euro in the sector every year. Not so ins- have, it's, have- it's not insignificant. So why aren't the uh, government and the authorities taking action? Do we know where this uh, fuel is coming from? Do we know who is behind it? And if so, why is, it con- is the practice continuing? We know exactly where it's coming from. We know exactly who's behind it. Um, just to give you some background, we have been lo- lobbying with the government. We have been in talks with them. Everyone is uh, very sympathetic in terms of the issues that we do realise that there is some serious issues with the lack of enforcement and regulation. If we go back to 2022, there was new solid fuel regulations that came into play, so uh, bituminous coal could no longer be sold. Um, sulfur level had to be at 2% or less, and pea turf uh, could no longer be commercially sold. Since that, we have seen um, an unprecedented level of um, illegal fuel coming into the country, which is carbon tax fraud, um, VAT fraud, and it's causing horrendous problems for the legitimate fuel business. So we know exactly where it's coming from. Uh, we know the government realised that there is major issues as well. They are trying to address it. They have uh, recently put in place a local authority enforcement grant to try and um, address this issue. But... I will tell you, if something is not done within the next five to six months, you will see a rapid decline in legitimate fuel merchants in this country. Now, somebody's bringing it in, but they wouldn't be bringing it in if nobody was buying it. So why is that happening? It's illegal to buy this stuff. It's illegal to burn it. it, it, it it's, with there's, there's, there's some issues in relation to that as well. It's not, it's not illegal to burn it. It's illegal to sell it. It's illegal to commercially sell it. Um, that, that's another issue that they're trying to address at the moment as well. But the biggest issue is it's, it, it can be as much as five to six euro a bag cheaper than what we're selling our fuel at at the moment. So basically, that's, that's a major issue. We do not blame people for this whatsoever. We blame the lack of enforcement and regulation. That's what we really, really blame for this issue. So perhaps you could just clarify for me then, where do you go to buy this stuff? Is it off the back of a lorry? Does somebody know somebody that on a Tuesday or a Wednesday you can go down there at 2 o'clock and get these bags of coal significantly cheaper than you would from your coal merchant? 
Alan, it's actually online. It's on all social media. Historically, it used to be a border issue, but now it's a countrywide issue. Um, you can go onto any any social media platform. You can go onto any online platform, and you'll be able to order this call. Um, you know, and 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 we have couriers that are illegally. It's illegal. It's illegal to bring this product into the country, and we have couriers that are bringing this product into the country as well. So I mean, it's 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 it, and it's also been sold by unregistered fuel merchants who are buying for cash, selling for cash. They're making no contribution to the exchequer. Um, they're in vans. They're in the backs of trailers. They're going around under the cover of darkness at night time. So it's widespread at the moment. It's a major issue for us. Now, budget twenty four is coming up uh, in a in a handful of weeks. You've made a pre budget submission to the government. What are you looking for from them? Well, there's three key asks we're looking for at the moment. We're looking for funding for enforcement. We're looking for a task force to be set up with local authorities, the Revenue and Angarda Shikana to tackle this issue. We're also looking for to be included. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss in the just transition funding but we're also looking for funding funding which is specific to our business okay talk to um, me a little bit about the just transition funding what is that well that's funding as we transition to a greener economy there is funding available there for businesses that are be affected by as we transition however um solid fuel merchants like ourselves we are not included in this funding at the moment so basically our very existence is under threat as we transition to a greener economy um, we have we have uh, fifth, sixth, seventh generation of fuel merchants in this country as well. So we're actually looking for funding specifically to our business. And we've had major issues in the last 12 months that our businesses have been hit between 30 and 40% down on the year before. And it's solely to do, uh, solely, solely because there has been a very lack of uh, enforcement and regulation. And we just can't compete. So we are actually looking for funding specific to our business now at the moment. Okay, can I ask you, Colin, what do you say to environmentalists and advocators that, you know, there is no more room for you guys in this world anymore because you are a blight on this world in terms of polluting it and you're not doing a whole lot to help it either? Well, in relation to that, okay, just to give you an idea, um, we are we are compliant. We're actually doing everything that the government are asking us to do. We are selling the legal fuel, the fuels that are legal to be sold. Uh, there is 700,000 houses still in this country that burn uh, solid fuel on a, on a weekly basis. 200,000 solely depend on solid fuel. So there is a need for us to be there. But I will tell you, the biggest thing to tackle at the moment is the legal activity that's going on in the marketplace. Because unless that's addressed, we have 
uh, no way of reaching our targets in 2030 and in 2050 in terms of our environmental targets. But in reality, you know, a lot of people will be glad to see the back of you. And I see, I, I, I say that in, in, in the context of what is happening globally, global, uh, yes, climate Alan, change. And we're, not, Alan, and we're not climate change deniers by any means. We're, we know we have to change, and we are changing. And this is the biggest problem, and this is why we're in the position that we, are, that we have changed. We are now complying with government rules and regulations, but unfortunately we feel abandoned. We've been left on our own. You know, and uh, it's, 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 it's a crazy position to be in that you're doing exactly what you're expected of you, but we're not being supportive with enforcement and regulation. What are you doing to develop a lower carbon alternative? We are promoting biomass fuels where we can. We're trying to source with our suppliers biomass cleaner fuels as well. We're promoting it through our alliance as well. Anything we can do as well. But it will come to the stage where our business, our business model um, will be no longer viable. And at that stage, we're looking for maybe a sunset closure package from government or we're looking for funding or some people that want to transition into different businesses that funding will be available for those businesses. And is that in re- a reality? And if so, how long will it take to happen? Well, this is the other thing. As I said to you, everyone is very sympathetic to our cause. They're very supportive as well as everyone else. But um, it's, it's, it's Ireland. It could take years before this, this, this put, is put in place. And if, and if it does, and then proper enforcement and regulation is not in place over the next year or two years, well, you won't see any more legitimate fuel merchants in this country. This will be all black market activity, and there'll be no chance of reaching any, reaching any environmental targets. What's your fundamental problem with the administration of the fuel allowance scheme? In relation to that, well, we, we'd like to see that to be specific in relation to uh, the fuel scheme. Actually, the going vouchers are... Uh, going to, to local fuel merchants to tell you the truth because people actually get money for fuel allowance and maybe 60-70% of the time that money doesn't go on fuel it goes on something else Such as illegal, illegal fuels? Exactly, exactly so money is being generated in the state we are contrib- contributing to the exchequer and then fuel allowance is, is coming in it's being made available to people and they're buying fuel and they're sending that money outside the state so there's no real control over it we like to see that uh, working um, in conjunction with local authorities that um, vouchers will be given for local fuel merchants and when they want the fuel, they will come to us for that. And is that something and the local authorities and the government are amenable to? Exactly, yeah, well, I mean, if they want it, I mean, we are doing everything we should be doing. We are, we are helping them in terms of reaching their environmental targets by selling their approved fuels. So, I mean, if they're really serious about hitting environmental targets, this is something seriously they should be looking at. Just finally, before I let you go, Colin, um, how do you see the landscape in Ireland from your perspective in the next five years? Will there be a need for the coal merchants, the local retailer, or will they be a bygone thing consigned to history because of the way we are going in terms of our awareness of, of uh, global issues and the changes that are required? Well, well definitely our whole, our, our whole business dynamic is changing and the future of our, our business is and you know as I said to you we're not climate change deniers we know it's going to change and over the next five to ten years we don't see a massive demand for, for fuels however um, we're so far behind on retrofitting um, as I said to you 700,000 houses still out there using solid fuels 200,000 using as a primary source of fuel um, a huge amount of black market activity going on so, I mean, unless it's addressed, unless issues are addressed, you won't have to worry about our sector because we'll be all out of business in two or three years' time and it's proper enforcement and regulation. But we know we have to change. And that's why we're looking for specific funding for our business that we know maybe our business will be no longer viable in five, seven, ten years' time and then there'll be no really need for us anymore. But uh, we're a long way away from that yet. 
Colin Ahern, Chair of the Solid Field Merchants Ireland, joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish government is considering taking the UK authorities to the European Court of Human Rights. It follows the ratification of the UK government's controversial legacy bill for Northern Ireland, which has become law. The Northern Ireland office said the bill had received what is known as royal assent which is a formality at the very end of the legislative process. Before coming on air uh, this morning, I spoke to Mark Thompson, who is CEO of the Relatives for Justice, and I began by asking him why there was such a pushback on the bill. Well, essentially, it's an amnesty and impunity bill for British state forces and the crimes they committed on Irish soil during the context of the conflict. Um, It prevents investigations into murders. It prevents inquests from taking place. prevents citizens who've been victims of the conflict from taking civil litigation. And essentially, it's a lockdown on the rule of law. Post the Good Friday Agreement, that provided uh, a series of rights and agency to families to pursue unresolved matters in relation to the conflict, issues of murder, shootings, bombings, injuries, torture, false imprisonment. And all of those issues have been um, proceeded through the courts over the last decade and a half or so. And in the context of doing that, the UK have prevaricated and delayed, destroyed evidence, denied their role in these matters, um, and, and really essentially um, covered up. And ultimately, they've looked at the global picture of all of this and uh, right across the board. And what they have done is they've brought in a piece of legislation that um, brings together um, all of the issues of national security, public interest, immunity, and they've locked down the law. It's been described internationally as Pinochet Plus. Um, it's been condemned by the Commissioner for Human Rights Commissioner for Europe, the Committee of the Ministers to the Council of Europe, uh, who supervise judgments from the European Court, the US Congress, the US Senate, Amnesty International, and every body at the UN that deals with these issues. So the UK has been warned not to go down this track. They unilaterally made this decision without the Irish government in the past 25 years or so. And even in achieving the Good Friday Agreement, there's been a kind of uh, a, a bi-government approach, bi-party, uh, inclusive approach. Uh, the UK did agree a mechanism to deal with the past, then unilaterally binned it, and then put in place this piece of legislation that's been so internationally condemned. OK, presumably you welcome the fact that this matter was discussed on the fringes of the UN summit in New York um, by the Taunish, by the Taoiseach, with President Joe Biden. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Taoiseach uh, and, 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 and the Taunish, you were absolutely correct to raise this with, with, with Biden. What the Irish government have attempted to do uh, in good faith has been to uh, try to have the British government pause and halt this bill to come back to the table and to talk to them and the other uh, parties and, of course, uh, victims themselves and, and their rights. Essentially, what you've really got to understand here is that post the Good Friday Agreement, what the UK are doing is they're denying rights. If you have, a, if you live in the north of Ireland and you have had someone murdered by, whether it's by paramilitaries or by the state, or someone who's been injured in a bomb explosion or a shooting and carries those injuries for the rest of their lives. What they have essentially said to those citizens, you have no rights to remedy. We are now taking away your rights to an investigation, the rights to hold the perpetrators responsible and accountable before a court. And we're even shutting down the fact that you could take civil litigation for compensation. So they have did that. This is the only jurisdiction in the Western democracy, in the civilised world, in which if you had someone murdered or you received or sustained an injury, that you're not allowed remedy. Some T-shirts and the Tonish were right in raising this, and, and hopefully 
um, you know, they will now take an interstate case. This is the only thing open. They've tried every diplomatic route possible. This is to the European Court of Human Rights. Now, now they did, both of them, flag the prospect of this happening. Are you any closer to understanding, in terms of what you know, will this happen? Well, we're hopeful that it will happen. Um, This morning at 10 o'clock, I'm in the Royal Courts of Justice in Belfast, where 15 cases are going to be lodged. They're in a challenge to this legislation. Now, that will take considerable time, and it could take several years before we get to Europe. The benefits of the Irish government taking the case is they don't have to go through the domestic courts. They go directly to Strasbourg in an interstate case, and it could be, it could be heard within six months. If families take it, it could, be, it could take six years. And families are aging and people are dying. So this is also a humanitarian issue, and that time is of the essence. And, you know, the, the Irish government need now to lodge the interstate case against the UK. They've did everything in their party to avoid doing this, and rightly so, and tried the diplomatic channels. The UK have just brushed that aside and ignored them and, and treated them with contempt, I may add. And, 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 and so I think the Irish government have no alternative okay. to do this and stand up for all citizens in the North Chris, in terms of their rights. Chris Eaton Harris said... But he recognised that, and quote, getting to this juncture had been hugely difficult in terms of its task. Now, on the basis of that and the comments that he, he stated, one would presume that he engaged in a fulsome manner with all stakeholders on this issue in order to come to some form of consensus. I take it that this hasn't been the case. Move. This move by the UK was totally unilateral. They did not discuss it with the Irish government. They did not discuss it, discuss it with any of the political parties. They did not discuss it, more importantly, with the people who have been affected and had their relatives killed. They did not discuss it with the Council of Europe or the Committee of Ministers to Europe, the United Nations, or anybody else. They didn't discuss it with the Labour Party and Britain, its own opposition, who are opposed to this. They did this unilaterally out of vested, selfish, strategic interest to protect British soldiers. And that's really what is the essence of this. And now they're doubling down and bunkering down and trying to force it through. It has no consent. It has no support. It is total universal opposition to this outside of the Conservative Party in Britain. Okay. now, as you alluded to, you were in court uh, this morning. The, I suppose, momentum is gathering around legal action amongst numerous individuals. What is the broad thrust of the case that you are taking? Well, the case is that this is a systemic violation of the rights of citizens under the European Convention of Human Rights that stipulates and places obligations, legal obligations, on the UK to hold proper independent investigations in the atrocities perpetrated during the conflict, whether they were perpetrated directly by the British state and its agencies, or its agents through collusion with paramilitary organisations, or by paramilitary organisations. All of those families and all of those bereaved and all of those injured are entitled to remedy and redress and accountability. And what the UK has done is that they have put a block on that and a lockdown. This is anti-victim, anti-rule of law, anti-human rights legislation, which is now law. And the families are challenging it and it'll take time. And they're seeking interim resolution from the European Court. And what we need is an interstate case to be a be applied as well directly to Strasbourg and we're appealing to the Irish government now to do that. They've did everything they can to try and avoid this and rightly so tried diplomatic channels but now the legislation has become law, it's in place, the British government are pushing forward regardless uh, of any of the concerns that have been raised and objections that have been raised and the only way to deal with this now is by an interstate case.
And that was Mark Thompson, CEO of Relatives for Justice, talking to me a short time ago. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, welcome back to the programme. If you want to give us a call, you know the number. You can email us, and that email address, as always, is michael at lmfm.ie. Text or WhatsApp 86 658 A couple of comments just to get through in relation to the return of the Doyle. Sarah says, we're hearing all over the news this morning about the return of the Doyle and the government's big plans for the political term ahead, yet the Taoiseach isn't even in the country for the first day of the new term. It's a joke. Well, look, in fairness, the Taoiseach, the Tónis, the, and indeed the uh, leader of the Green Party are over at the UN General Assembly. It's a big, big deal. We need to be there. We have a chair of the UN and we need to be there to hit, make sure our voice is heard. So in the context of that, you know, I don't think it really is a joke. Planning Championships, Eamon wonders how all the electric cars will cope with all the mud and muck at the Planning Championships. Now, I was reminded when I was talking to Gavin Riley. And this completely slipped my mind that it's 25 years today since uh, TV3 came on air and I happened to be part of that journey and was quite a journey, as was so many other people who have become famous and infamous. And one of the stars of that particular launch was none other than Martin King, who is still with Virgin Media today. Guess what? Martin's on the end of the line. Martin, how are you? I'm all right, Alan. How are you? <laughs> I'm fantastic. I had forgotten about this, Martin. That was quite um, quite a roller coaster ride we had back that particular day. What was your memories of it? Well, my memory, well, my uh, of that first day. Yeah. My well, if you recall, it was a Sunday, um, and it was the start of an Indian summer. It was almost like we had pre-booked this glorious week of sunshine to coincide with the opening of. Uh, Ireland's first commercial and private uh, television station. So, yeah, I was getting myself set to go over and join you and Grania and Lorraine and Trevor uh, for the first for our first broadcast. When I got a call saying, listen, get out to Port Marnock. Uh, there's a nice cream seller out there who hasn't worked uh, throughout uh, July and August, and he's open for business today. So off we went to film, and sure, the beach was packed. It was a beautiful, beautiful September mm-hmm. day. And we could do with an Indian summer now. I know. You know what was extraordinary about this journey, and I'm sure it was probably the same for you, Martin, because both of us uh, came from a radio background and working in radio and television, chalk and cheese, because everything is just so regimented in television compared to radio. Because in radio, you've a degree of latitude to do anything that you want to. But then you're thrown into TV and it's a case of, well, you must sit this way. You must look at that camera. You must make sure to look at that person and look at that camera at this time or whatever. It was, uh, for me, it was a bit of a head wreck was it for you yeah it was because because like you said there's an immediacy with radio that you can turn something around in a second like in a thought you can you you can uh, throw out a topic for discussion whereas on tv because of editing and because you need pictures um uh, it, it is different so yeah it was massive massively different i was fortunate um, as opposed to the position you were in, where you were to you were to look at two or three different cameras, so you know go where the red light is. I just had one camera that I had to look at, um, so it, it was a little bit easier uh, for me in that regard. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, you, it was it was a massive step. Yeah, you managed to carve out yourself a niche there, Martin, that was never done before. I mean, you were a superstar. Uh, you weren't just the weatherman. You were a star, and you made that that slot your own, and it has stood you in good stead for so many years. 
but but you know the gas thing is, and, and thank, thanks for saying that, Alan. Um, but the the good thing is, it was the radio experience that helped me there because, as you know, I didn't I didn't use Autocue, mm-hmm. so I was literally relying on my radio experience and that great skill that we have of just you know remembering different keywords and different key points to to do a two or three minute piece. Um, so yeah, I used that radio experience then. But because of where I was in our news programme, I was sometimes the buffer. So if a story fell down... (laughs) I'll give Martin another two minutes. (laughs) Or two stories fell down, I went from two and a half or three minutes to four and a half or five minutes. Um, I think the longest one I had to do was six minutes. Uh, So, uh, yeah, yeah, I was the buffer. And you know something, in terms of the history of broadcasting in Ireland, it was at a pivotal point. um, It was the first independent television station. We came in for a lot of stick prior to and Ah. when we went on air, but we carved out a niche there. We did pretty well. It was a success. And, you know, we did things a little bit differently. We stirred things up. And I think it made a difference. Oh, it made a massive difference. And I remember I remember um, our, our main opposition tagging us as Tala TV. TV, yeah. Yeah. And, and as, as, you know, and as annoying as that was, it also let me know that we were getting under their skin, mm-hmm. that we had come along and we were doing things differently and we were fresh and we were trying different things. And, um, and I know what I was doing was I was just told, look, we want a weather section. It needs to be. It needs to be an information service first, and then we need to colour it up with other stuff. That's up to you. And then, uh, and then off we went doing doing what we became famous for. Um, you, of course, Martin. Yeah, you made the and transition the thing, then. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was saying the other thing that we focused on was that we made sure that we weren't Dublin centric. Yeah. That we, we like we threw the net and we said no, we're not just for people within the pale. This is for everybody, and uh, and we really focused on that, which I think um, also uh, took us to people's hearts. You, as I was about to say, managed to make the transition to programming, and you're very good at anchoring your own programs in there, six o'clock show or whatever, and then your own at the weekend as well. How'd you find that transition, Martin? I mean, it's probably a natural thing for you because you're a chatter. We could sit here and talk for the next hour and it wouldn't take a, a jot out of you. Well, but you see, the first, my first, well, I was always a radio presenter, uh, as, as were you. Um, we, we, like, the bulk of us had radio experience, but we had experience as presenters. When, when Andrew Hanlon, who was head of news then, came to me and said, we wanted to come over and work at this news station, TV3, and we wanted to do weather, I thought, no. Nah. No, um, because I just I just knew what I had seen before, and I thought, no, that's not what I want to do. And he said, no, 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 come and talk to us. And then he, he told me, look, this is what we wanted to be, and the rest of it was up to you. So, yeah, to to move into programming, the first one I did was with you and Colette. Oh, cheapers, yeah, midday, midday, <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, and I have great memories of that because we, we did have great chats and it was it, it was more topical affairs than current affairs. Yeah. But it was driven by the by by what was making the papers that particular day. And do you know what? It was we were doing that before Loose Women came along over on ITV. And it was a, a, a great panel discussion. Yeah. Um, and uh, just so, on that, Martin, because I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm running out of time on this. So you've mentioned that and it just triggered a memory with me. We had one of the guests of Loose Women 
on midday, shortly after they went on air. And they were astounded that we were able to put a programme together unscripted that was just on the fly because I remember her saying to us it was one of the, the Nolan sisters what was her name who was who presented uh, was it was it Linda yeah I can't I can't remember for the life of me but what she told us was that every single line joke whatever is all scripted it's all rehearsed before they go to air and she just get, couldn't get her head around the fact that we'd sit around a desk and just let rip and see where it went. But anyway, i got to go, Martin. Onwards and upwards, absolute pressure. Martin King celebrating 25 years at Virgin Media TV. He is one, I think, of... Is he, I think he's probably the only original cast member who's still there. But thanks so much for taking the call, Martin. Now then, we need to move on. Uh, at the time, 22 minutes to 11, 700 cases of mouth, head and neck cancer will be diagnosed this year. 300 of those will be diagnosed as mouth cancer alone. People are being urged to avail of free dental checkups through their PSRI or medical card. The call comes on Mouth Cancer Awareness Day, an annual campaign run by the Irish Dental Association that aims to highlight the importance of visiting a dentist regularly for a full oral examination in order to maintain good oral health. Dr Eamon Croke, President of the Irish Dental Association, joined us this morning. Doctor, good morning. Thank you so much for taking our call. I want to ask you about these particular figures. Do you think that this is merely the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, the number of cases that are being identified? Is there more? Um, I would I, I would suspect there is because they're forever developing, Alan, and, and thank you for having me on this morning. It's a very important topic to us. Um, I, I think if you look at the figures in the UK relative even to the population sizes, they have uh, very, very high figures compared to ourselves. Um, and in the UK, over 3,000 people lose their lives to mouth cancer every year. So uh, mouth cancer and head and neck cancer is the sixth most common cancer in the world. So it's a very, very significant cancer. And this is why we use today to highlight uh, what you can do if you have concerns, or even if you don't have concerns, you mentioned going to get Mm -hmm. a, a dental checkup with your PRSI or your medical card. So it's really to bring it to people's attention because uh, one of the things, again, in the UK, they found that people are very much aware of mouth cancer, but very few people are aware of the symptoms to look out for. Now, I am presuming that dental hygienists and dentists, um, uh, practitioners, as part of their training, are trained to look out for this sort of stuff. Yes, it's very much part of our training and it would be part of a regular dental checkup. Uh, dentists will uh, look around your mouth, they may palpate your neck and under your chin and down to your collarbone and then they will look around your mouth. And what they're looking for, there are any unusual lumps, colour changes, texture changes, ulcers that don't heal, uh, but they may also inquire of any other symptoms you may have. Sometimes people present Say, for example, they, they think their dentures suddenly got loose. And in fact, there may be something going on around it. Now, again, I need to stress that, uh, you know, it's not always sinister, but I've learned over many years of doing dentistry that people know their mouths. And if, if anybody has a concern, then I would always advise them uh, to go and get it checked out. Can I ask you what constitutes a regular checkup? Um, it depends on on the person. Somebody with a in a say 
high risk situation for dental diseases, whether it be gum disease or uh, dental decay, may attend on a very regular basis, every six months, every three months in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who are uh, in, you know, a good, stable situation, well maintained, once a year may be enough for them. But again, the, the issue here is to discuss it with your dentist. Uh, if there's a hygienist involved, bring the hygienist in and make out a personal plan for the person rather than just, say, rubber stamp six months, rubber stamp one year. But again, on PRSI, medical card, you're allowed to have your free checkup once a year. So that, that is available anyway. And just to be clear as well, it's par for the course for a hygienist or a dentist to go through the process of looking for anomalies within the mouth to see if there's something not quite right there. And if they discover that, what's, what's the next course of action from their perspective? What do they do? Um, from Well, certainly the dentist, if a hygienist spotted something, they would ask the dentist to have a look at it. Um, and then from there... Uh, if the dentist is unhappy, they have the facility to refer the patient on um, and both dental uh, hospitals in, in Dublin and Cork uh, are very much involved in the Mouth Cancer Awareness Day and they have on the websites very clear paths of referrals mm-hmm. with the capability to uh, bring it forward if uh, the dentist is concerned, they state uh, their level of concern and if they can provide photographs and that can be on an iPhone and it's secure, you know, then that all moves things ahead very quickly. Um, so that would be the normal path of referral. There may also be some local maxillofacial surgeons uh, that dentists would know of in their own locality who would be involved in the referral pathway as well. Do you have any figures that outline the positive outcomes of identifying something within a, within a patient and then seeing it to a positive conclusion? Or do you just recognise, then make, uh, give information and then leave it at that? Is there a follow-up in terms, for, just for, I'm thinking about the, for your, from your own perspective in terms of figures available? Um, well, broad figures are uh, that if you can get something early. So in other words, you, you, and this is really the advantage of people reacting to their own concerns rather than saying, oh, it's nothing, to actually go and get it checked out because early intervention improves the success rate uh, of um, any treatment that's undertaken. So broad figures that are given is that there would be uh, hopefully a 50% success rate over five years uh, provided the lump or the change um, hadn't extended into the neck. If it extends into the neck, then unfortunately the survival rates go down quite considerably. Just before I let you go, Dr. Croak, can you just talk to me a little bit about the symptoms that we can look out for ourselves on a daily basis? Because you know yourself, some of us chew our gums, there might be discoloration there, there might be a little bit lumpy, but that's par for the course and it happens quite daily. But what are the danger signs that we need to recognise? Okay, uh, that's an excellent question. Thank you. The, the, one of the most common areas in, is an ulcer. Uh, that doesn't heal after three weeks. Most ulcers will heal within 
10 to 14 days. Uh, but if it doesn't heal after three weeks, you should get it checked out. Uh, if there are, you notice red patches, either in colour or white patches in your mouth, or you may notice a change in texture in your mouth, or any lump or swelling uh, that again persists for more than three weeks, then again get that checked out. If you get other symptoms like a sense of numbness in your tongue, difficulty in swallowing, uh, or a hoarseness that lasts more than six weeks, then again, or sore, chronic sore throat indeed, that lasts more than six weeks, again, that's very important that you go and you ask somebody to have a look at that for you. And then also, if you suddenly notice that teeth were moving or indeed that your denture didn't fit uh, particularly well uh, suddenly, uh, then that again would be cause for concern and, and you should go and get all that checked out. Very good. We leave it there. Dr. Eamon Crow, President of the Irish Dental Association. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Street protests can force a government rethink on the shape of the budget. People before Profit Solidarity TD Richard Boyd Barrett has insisted. He cited the impact of past demonstrations and water charges an example of the influence of people power. Richard Boyd Barrett was speaking at the People Before Profit Solidarity Think In event in Dublin, which concluded yesterday. And Deputy Boyd Barrett joins us this morning. Uh, Richard, Good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Before we just get to your party thinking, can I just ask you for your own view on the comments made by the President, Michael D. Higgins, of the Planning Championship yesterday around the UN? He's practically saying it's not really fit for purpose and it's not fit for carrying out the work that it is. it should be doing. Is he wandering into territory that's none of his business? Well, no. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's uh, right to comment on... Uh, uh, as he has done on issues like housing and, you know, wealth inequality and many other issues. I welcome the fact that this is a president who has pushed the boundaries on certain things uh, that he considers to be important. And I think he's obviously got a point. I mean, the fact that the United Nations is completely dominated by a Security Council where the permanent members are the five biggest military powers in the world, all of whom have nuclear weapons, uh, you know, and have a history of militarism and war among them. I think he's making a valid point. I mean, if the United, the United Nations is to mean anything, it, sh- it should be one where you don't, you don't dominate the institution simply by virtue of the fact that you're a major uh, military or imperial power okay. with lots of weapons and guns. Yeah, but what I'm saying it in the context of him being the president of Ireland, and as president, he's precluded from dipping his toe into issues and matters pertaining to politics. This is what he's clearly doing here. He shouldn't be doing it, whether we, we agree with him or not. Look, to be honest, I, I mean, I welcome the fact that this president has pushed the boundaries on what I would consider to be certain important issues. Um, and I don't see a major problem with it. Okay. Uh, if it helps generate a debate uh, about important issues that affect this country or the world, I think that's a, an entirely reasonable thing to do. Okay. Um, and I don't think the government sh- should be afraid of a bit of a discussion. Let's have a discussion then about your own party thinking uh, yesterday. What came out of that that will have an impact, that will make a difference to people's lives if implemented? 
Well, look, the thing that is absolutely dominating the lives of hundreds of thousands of working people, of pensioners, of students, of people with disabilities, of people on low and middle incomes, is a cost of living and housing crisis that the government has absolutely failed uh, to address. And it is our view that the elephant in the room of, the, of that crisis is the rampant profiteering of energy companies, of banks, of big corporates, uh, landlords and uh, vulture funds and so on, who are making a killing out of the hardship and misery and uh, indeed, you know, in the extreme cases, the homelessness of ordinary people. And that needs to be addressed. And we need to put pressure on this government uh, to change its priorities from looking after those who are making super profits from this cost of living and housing crisis to protecting ordinary working people and uh, vulnerable people who are really, really suffering at the moment. And we absolutely believe that mobilising people on the streets to demand, you know, that uh, we get uh, much more delivery in terms of public and affordable housing, that we control the rack renting of some of the big corporate landlords in this country, that we can uh, stop the profiteering of big energy companies and actually uh, put some sort of cap on the cost of energy, or that we control yeah, the okay. profiteering of the banks. That yeah, but Richard, are things that people power can influence. Yeah, but no one disagrees with that. However, <clears> this <throat> is not a utopia, and the government cannot be seen to be meddling in the affairs of big business because you start doing that, that frightens the horses. You will find that FDI will run scared. You'll find that big business will run scared. They are unfortunately market circumstances that we must live with. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. And it will change. No. We will well, see oil prices coming back. We'll see prices falling. But unfortunately, the best we can do at the moment is some form of financial subvention in the budget to those who are more hard-pressed than others financially. No, I don't accept that at all. I mean, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, first of all, uh, some estimates would suggest that the average worker in this country may, in real terms, when you take the impact of mortgage interest hikes, when you take into account energy price hikes, the cost of groceries, the cost of housing and so on, that, that in real terms, many workers may have lost up to €10,000 uh, over the course of this cost of living crisis. And that has directly then benefited the coffers of some of the uh, institutions and uh, corporations that I've mentioned, the banks, the energy companies and so on. And Ireland actually is out of line with our European partners in this regard. We have much higher energy costs uh, than many of our European partners. We have higher mortgage interest rates than many of our Europe, European uh, partners. And that is because the government allows that to happen. Uh, and they have the power to act. And the idea that we can't at least uh, you know, do uh, as well or better than some of our European counterparts, I, I, I reject as nonsense. Okay. It's, just, it's just making excuses for the profiteering of banks and energy companies okay. uh, and corporate landlords. Let me ask you in the minute that we have left, Richard, if you were given that carte blanche to do what you will or you wish to implement your policies, where would you think this country would be in two years' time? I think we'd be in a hell of a lot better place if we solved the housing and homelessness crisis. I mean, when you look at, for example, the fact that we don't, we can't employ teachers in many of the big cities and urban centres because they can't afford uh, the cost of accommodation. When you think about 
the shortages we have in terms of the construction workers we need uh, to build houses. When you look at the chronic shortages of health staff in our hospitals that then have a knock-on effect of people being on waiting lists uh, for months and sometimes years, if we actually solve the housing crisis, if we protect uh, the incomes of workers so they actually get some benefit from the jobs they're doing, we can begin to solve the problems that are facing our society. Okay, but Richard, Uh, with all due respect to your own party, every other party has failed miserably to grapple with these problems despite their best efforts. So what makes you different than being an outlier to everybody else? Well, look, uh, first of all, this state has been dominated for its entire history, not by every other party, but by two parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Sadly, other parties that tried to sort of challenge their policies, their centre-right policies, have ended up propping them up uh, rather than actually mounting a serious challenge to their priorities. And I think what is distinct about people before profit is that we believe if we're going to get real change, uh, we need to have a government that does not involve Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. They've had their chance, but that actually puts forward a left-wing programme, which we've never, ever had in this country. Does by that mean, government. would you jump into bed with Sinn Féin? We will jump into bed with parties that put forward principal left-wing policies. And uh, we work, for example, with Sinn Féin and other lefts and in- left independents. Uh, we did work with them on the water charges campaign. We work with them on campaigns like the housing, uh, raise the roof campaign. Uh, we've worked with other left parties on the cost of living coalition that is organising the, the big demonstration okay. on Saturday, October the 7th, before the budget. So if parties like Sinn Féin and others on the left are genuinely going to offer an alternative and not just end up propping up Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael again, absolutely, we okay, want to Richard, work with them to create a left government. We've got to leave there. Richard Boyd Byer, People for Profit Solidarity. Thank you for joining us. That's it. Back with you tomorrow, same time. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.